910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. Chris, it feels like we just started this series, Real Truth About Real Stuff, round two, and here we are on the last episode. Well, they say time flies when you're having fun, and we certainly hope everyone else has enjoyed this series as much as we have. And we have another hopefully great series beginning next week called Dysfunctional Children, Functional God. But first, let's finish up Real Truth About Real Stuff, round two, with this episode called Loving the Unlovable. Well, we all know the command to love our enemies. Jesus expects us to put the best interests of everyone, even our enemies, before our own. An enemy is defined as a person who feels hatred for, fosters harmful designs against, or engages in antagonistic activities against another, an adversary, or an opponent. So we pretty much know what we're going to get with our enemies. We aren't expecting much from them in return. But what about those who aren't our enemies? Maybe they're friends or family members or church members. And for various reasons, they're just unlovable. Or what if it's us who's really difficult for people to be around and to love? Do we just suck it up and accept other people for who they are and accept ourselves for who we are and just use the same concept as we do for our enemies? Chris, as we always do, let's look at some worldly views on this subject. Why don't you start with what makes someone unlovable? Okay. Well, Reddit recently posted this question in an open forum. They asked people to respond with what makes someone unlovable. Here's some of the answers that they received. A lousy personality and unattractive features. Not being clean cut or being dirty. Being ugly. Being conceited being insecure about everything, and constantly looking for reassurance. I don't think you even need to be a Christian to agree that that list is pretty superficial and most of it's pretty ridiculous. But here's another one, and this one's a little more logical, and it looks at the subject of whether we're the ones who are unlovable. Bold Magazine, who says their mission is to inspire an uninhibited conversation about what it's like to be single and dating today, recently published an article called 10 Signs That You're Hard to Love. And here's their list. You don't know how to apologize. You never compromise. You're unpredictable. You're flaky or unreliable. You hold on to old baggage. You put up emotional walls. You're self-destructive. You're dishonest. You're bad in communicating. You don't believe you deserve to be loved. Yeah, I think most of us can agree that some of those character traits on that list can pose a challenge to make a person lovable. Let's do another one about why you might not be lovable. This is from a psychology group in the UK. They say, if you think you're unlovable, it's because you have wrong beliefs about yourself. Some of these wrong beliefs, core beliefs, as they call them, people harbor about themselves. And some of them are, I'm not good enough to be loved. I'm too ugly, flawed, stupid, or damaged to be loved. There's something really wrong with me that means nobody can love me or love is for other people, not me. I'm a monster that nobody can love. They go on to say that the misbeliefs you just described, Chris, stem from circumstances outside of our control, like childhood trauma, childhood sexual abuse, or even if you had the seemingly perfect childhood, maybe your parents weren't empathetic enough. 
or they seem to only show you love when they were proud of you. This can scar you and make you feel unlovable. So those are two very opposing views. When it comes to being unlovable, one says to take an honest look at yourself and the other one says to look around you for somebody else to blame. It sounds familiar from last week's episode called The Blame Game. Let's finish up the worldly view by looking at what advice is given if you think you are unlovable. This is from The Mighty and it's titled 17 Things to Do If You Think That You Are Unlovable. I'm going to read them here. I'm going to read them and try not to laugh. Read messages from loved ones. Spend time with your pets. That might make me more ugly. Spend extra time getting ready. Take yourself out on a date. Shower or take a bath. Work out. Wow. Do something creative. Show love to others. Look back on photos or memories. Clean. Not quite getting that one. Give someone a hug, treat yourself, listen to music, write yourself a love note, something I'll never do, Rose, take a nap, something I will do, that one. <laughs> something I do a lot, uh, watch YouTube videos, and let me give you the last one, watch a favorite show or movie, so there's your solid advice. <laughs> So we have one secular site that gives a pretty good list of character traits that make someone unlovable, but gives no advice or teaching on how to overcome them. And a couple of other sites that says, if you're the one who's unlovable, it's all in your head and you just need to distract yourself from that kind of negative thinking. So what's the truth? Are there legitimate reasons that makes a person or ourselves unlovable? And if there is, what do we do about it? And how do we love the person that has traits that make them unpleasant or maybe even impossible to be around? Chris, I think we all know where we need to go for the answers. We do. The Bible has a lot of examples with people with these traits that we would say make them hard to love. So let's start by looking at a few of them. And maybe their personalities and issues will ring true for some of us who may have similar people in our lives, or maybe they will convict us ourselves of some of our own issues. So first is Jacob. Jacob's very name means heel grasper, which is an ancient slang for a con man. And Jacob lived up to the hype. A familiar passage from Genesis 25, 29 to 34 shows us Jacob's nature. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose up and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. So Jacob shows his true colors by taking advantage of his brother's hunger and stupidity. And it doesn't end there. Jacob treats his brother out of the blessing of the firstborn, something God had already said would be Jacob's, but instead of trusting God in it, he and his mother took matters into their own hands. You would think Jacob would have learned a lesson after being cheated by his uncle, but he doesn't. In fact, he pays back his uncle's dishonesty by rigging the herds of livestock so he gets all the best ones. So besides being a cheater and a deceiver, 
Jacob's life is marked by his showing favoritism to his wives, to his children, being a lousy father, being passive aggressive, being selfish, and looking at life through the lens of how it affected him. I would say Jacob definitely would qualify as someone who would be hard to love. I would agree. Proverbs 6, 12 to 15 has something to say about anyone who may be like Jacob. Worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. The commentator Barnes says this, this is the portrait of a man who is not to be trusted, whose look and gestures warn against him all who can observe. His speech is torturous and crafty. His wink tells the accomplice that the victim's already snared. His gestures with foot and hand are half in deceit and half in mockery. Rose, perhaps some of us have a Jacob in our life, and maybe we have some of Jacob's traits in us. Yeah. And moving on to someone else who was unlovable, at least at early in their life, partially as a result of Jacob's lousy parenting skills and showing favoritism with his kids, is his son, Joseph. When we first meet Joseph in Genesis, he's a bratty, obnoxious teenager who takes great pleasure on tattling on his brothers and throwing in their face and in his parents' face a dream that showed him he would be above them all one day. And we all probably know the story. Joseph was so unlovable, his brothers decided to get rid of him just so they didn't have to deal with him anymore. Yeah, I mean, he was a brat, but it seems like it anyway. It's too bad that the Proverbs weren't written when Joseph lived. He could have learned a lot from them. On being a know-it-all and just generally obnoxious, Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds back. Proverbs 3.7 says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And Proverbs 21, 23 says, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Great words. Yes. How about the bragging? Well, Proverbs is a great place for advice on that too. Proverbs 27, 2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Proverbs 11, 2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humble is wisdom. And one that has Joseph's name written all over it is Proverbs 27, 1, which says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Very true. Joseph not only didn't have the Proverbs, but he didn't have Paul to lean on either. That's too bad because Paul has some sound advice for those who are tattletales looking to get others in trouble. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So do you have a young Joseph in your life? If so, you may not be driven to sell them to a foreign country, but they can be very difficult to love and you have to love them. Are you a Joseph? Can you be obnoxious, a know-it-all, or somebody that just is a braggart? Do you thrive on pointing out other people's shortcomings and your own strengths? And next, here's a guy who might be the most unlovable, quote unquote, Bible hero in all of scripture, Samson. 
He was selfish, arrogant, a sex addict, a hothead, immature, vengeful. And even though his parents received a prophecy about his birth and his purpose, he never once showed he gave a flip about his purpose or God's plan for his life. He spent his life pursuing his own interests. Chris, he might be the very definition of unlovable. He may be. And we hope that you don't have someone exactly like Samson in your life, but maybe you have someone who has some of his traits. Is there someone in your life who only cares about themselves or who has a bad temper or is spiteful or who's immature and doesn't ever listen to sound advice? Maybe some of us need to ask ourselves if we have any of those traits. Those are traits that make a person difficult and in the extreme, sometimes even dangerous to love. Right. Perhaps Solomon knew this, which is why in Proverbs twenty two twenty four he gives the advice, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. And in Proverbs fourteen seventeen it says, a man of quick temper acts foolishly. I bet we can all think of an example of someone we know, or maybe even ourselves, that have proven this proverb true. And how about Samson's addiction to sex and disregard for marriage? 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And Hebrews 13, 4 says this about marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And we could spend the whole episode on Samson's unlovable qualities, but we'll do just one more that may resonate with some of us. And that's immaturity. Nothing is more frustrating than dealing with someone who just won't grow up. They're like a child in an adult body. And I don't mean they sit around playing video games like a kid. I mean that even though they're adults, they're willful, stubborn, and incorrigible as a toddler. 1 Corinthians 14.20 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. What Paul means here is in your actions, be as innocent as an infant, but be mature and grown up in your thinking. Of course. And the first step to maturity is revealed to us in our favorite verse, Rose, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. I agree that having some of Samson's traits would make a person very difficult to love. And like you said, Samson might be the very definition of unlovable. But on the opposite side, someone who almost everyone would consider very lovable is King David. But he certainly had his share of terrible character traits that would make him difficult to love. We don't know if he was a sex addict like Samson was or if he was on a major power trip. But after taking many wives and concubines, he still has to go and force a married woman to have sex with him because he thought she was beautiful. And of course, he tries to cover it up and ultimately ends up doing that by trying to do that by murdering the woman's husband. And if he was on a bit of a power trip with taking so many wives and concubines, that same power trip may be what drove him to arrogantly count his troops, something that was forbidden for him to do. David was also similar to Jacob in that he was passive and a pretty lousy father. So do you know anyone with any of these traits? Someone who doesn't see monogamism as something to strive for, maybe dates a lot of different men or women and see them as objects for their own pleasure or agenda. Or maybe it's not even in the dating realm. Maybe just in the general sense, they see people as a means to get what they want without considering the hurt they could be leaving in their wake. 
Yeah, I think that would be a lot of people would know somebody like that. Or maybe some of us are like that. You know, we don't take people's feelings or the best interests of others into account when we're on a mission to get what we want. And I think, you know, it's easy to think of it in a big way, but we can think of that in ourselves, probably almost all of us in small ways that we do that. We want what we want. Yep. You know, sometimes people are casualties to our wants. Philippians 2 verse 3 tells us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. That's a toughie. Yeah, very tough. Very tough. Paul reiterates that same sentiment in 1 Corinthians 10, 24. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And James backs it up in James 3, 16, which says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Tough yeah. words. I, that They are tough words. Yeah. Applies to politics today, but they're very tough. Yeah. They are very, very tough words. And we're going to talk about this. Is, this stuff is tough. But let's talk about Peter, the apostle Peter. Know anyone like Peter? Do you see Peter and yourself? impulsive, not always thinking before you act, unreliable when needed. You know, after telling Jesus emphatically that he could be counted on to stand by him, Peter lies and runs at the first sign of real trouble. Many of Peter's failings are common passages to many of us. Like when Jesus told the apostles about his death and resurrection, and as Matthew 16, 22 says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I mean, can you imagine rebuking Jesus? (laughs) Or when Peter impulsively cut the ear off of one of the guards that came to arrest Jesus. And of course, after emphatically saying, even if everyone else fell away, that he would not. Then he denies Jesus three times to keep himself from getting arrested. I think rebuking Jesus would be the ultimate acting before you think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Who didn't want to take back those words, right? (laughs) Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Hello? Yeah. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And on speaking or acting before you think, there's two great verses in James and Proverbs. James 1.19 says, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And Proverbs 29, 20. Yeah. One that I probably need to listen to. Mm -hmm. And Proverbs 29, 20. There is more hope for a fool than for someone who speaks without thinking. Chris, I'm going to confess that I have many times spoken or acted before I really thought about it. And by nature, I'm pretty impulsive. Both of these have been things that I... I'm really working on because I know there are traits that make it difficult to deal with me at times. And I just said, mm-hmm, when you were saying that, and I didn't mean that for you. I'm thinking about myself. But yeah, I mean, I can be impulsive, but I have learned that sometimes it's just better to keep your mouth shut. And yes, it's better to be that quiet person in the corner who people are thinking, what is she thinking? Sometimes, <laughs> you know, so if I think about it that way, it, it almost makes it easier for me to do. But yeah, maybe. You know, we could keep going on and on, but let's do one more and then start looking at some practical application. Let's talk about Paul. Paul's prejudice was so bad 
that he wanted those he hated and he hated these people just because of who they followed. He wanted those he hated dead or at least imprisoned. We would liken Paul to the KKK or to the Nazis, which is pretty incredible that later he would pen in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, racism is a term that's thrown around a lot pretty loosely lately, but if you have someone in your life who's truly racist and who's truly prejudiced against a certain group of people, it can make them extremely difficult to love. Or maybe some of us see that trait in ourselves. So what's the point in telling about all these people in scripture that had very unlovable qualities? Is it to say that everyone is unlovable at some level? Yes, but that's not just it. Is it to say that despite having difficult character traits, God raises his people above their lousy character qualities and grows them into who he wants them to be for his purposes? Absolutely. But it's more than that. How do we practically deal with those who have character traits that make it extremely hard to love them? So Chris, let's get practical. Okay, so let's start with looking at ourselves first. As Matthew 7, 5 says, Take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And to do that, we can start with Romans 12, 2, which says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Part of not conforming to the world and renewing our mind is rejecting pop psychology that tells us you know, our faults aren't our own fault. Like the article that we quoted earlier, your parents didn't show you enough empathy or you were just, you're just thinking wrongly about yourself, which you're probably not. You probably have these traits, you know, as people of God, we need to be willing to do the hard work of introspection. Absolutely. And the place to start that introspection is with God, of course, as James 1, 5 tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but one prayer God will always answer is if you sincerely go to him and ask him to show you your sin. So if you think you may be someone who for whatever reason is unlovable, the answer is not to take yourself out on a date or spend time with your pets as pop culture suggests. It's to get honest with yourself and get honest with God. And like James said, we don't have to fear doing this. God already knows every molecule of us better than we could ever know ourselves. So it's not like we're revealing something about ourselves that he doesn't already know. That's it. Exactly right. And like James said, if we belong to Jesus, our slate has already been wiped clean. We've already been forgiven of the sin that we're looking to reveal and repent of. So we don't have to fear reproach from God about it. Once God reveals the sin to us, the hard work of cooperating with the Holy Spirit to mortify that sin and repent of it, which means completely turning from it and turning toward the things of God, begins. That's how a Christian is sanctified, and that's how we mature in our faith. This is what every biblical person we listed did. Granted, the Holy Spirit had to get a hold of them first. But they were all able to overcome their very unlovable traits by turning them over to God and turning away from their sinful traits. It's how they went from unlovable to being used mightily for God. And again, this is impossible for any of us to do without the Holy Spirit working in us. Okay, 
So let's spend some time talking about what to do when we aren't the unlovable one, but it's someone else in our life and it's making things really difficult. Chris, I'm going to start by reading John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. It says, when he, meaning Judas Iscariot, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow after. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Chris, this may seem like an odd passage to quote given the subject. So why don't you illuminate us on it? Well, first, this is obviously at the Last Supper. There's a few things to notice. First, Jesus waits to say this until after Judas leaves. This means that what Jesus said was for his people. Judas did not belong to him. So Judas has no part in this. That translates to this is not a message for unbelievers. Therefore, we should not expect them to follow the same commands that we do. And we see this clearly towards the latter part of this passage with Peter. Jesus obviously knew that both Judas and Peter would betray him. Yet he treated them very differently. Peter's going to do something very unlovable, about as unlovable as you can get, yet by including Peter in little children, referring to those who are his disciples, he's telling Peter that nothing Peter has done or will do will change his status as a child of God. In Mark 4, Jesus told all his apostles that they would fall away, yet that doesn't change what he says to them here in John. In contrast, Judas was left to his own devices, and eventually it led him to committing suicide. And to put this in terms that apply to our subject today, because we belong to Jesus, we're saved and sealed for all eternity. Nothing can change our status with God. We've been reconciled to God, and we have a right relationship with him. Instead of living under the 613 laws of the Old Testament, we live under the Ten Commandments and the two great commandments, which actually encompass the Ten Commandments love God and love others. I'm going to quote Pastor Chris Lenhart here. He says Jesus's mission can be summed up in six C's. So see if you catch the six C's. Christ, the cornerstone, was building a new community, the church, uniting them under a new covenant guided by a new command. Okay, see if you can catch the six C's in there. (laughs) And that new command is summed up in verse 35 of that John passage. By this, All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The old covenant, the law, was about keeping rules. It was about responsibilities and obligations. Jesus, though, replaces people's responsibilities or their efforts with love. We don't have to keep rules or obligations. We just need to love. Love God and love others. Now, understand, 
this love is defined by Jesus. It's not defined by any human or by the world. God has a right way for us to love. And as with everything else, when we stray from God's right way about everything and go our own way, it leads to death. As Proverbs 16, 25 tells us, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. This is evident throughout the entire Bible. Absolutely, it is. And we showed that through the people we listed. When they did things their own way, they were epic failures. It was only when they did things God's way that they succeeded. So how does all this apply to our topic today? People with traits like habitual lying, conceit, arrogance, unreliability, prejudice, etc., they're annoying and they're difficult to be around. We can find ourselves not liking them very much and not wanting to be around them. This is our way, but it's not God's way. And we're called to live life and love people God's way, not our way. And thankfully, we're never called to like anyone. <laughs> we're called to love them, you know? And we need to understand that loving people as Jesus commands us to is impossible if we're not guided by the Holy Spirit. With his help, we can learn to make the kind of love that Jesus calls us to a daily heart pattern for our lives. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on our feelings or the other person's towards us. In fact, it needs to always prevail despite how we might feel about them. And that can only be accomplished through the Holy Spirit. We don't have to emotionally love anyone, but we're required to actively love people. So even if someone in your life is completely unlovable, you need to love them. You may not like them very much, but you need to love them, biblically love them. That means looking out for their best interest. Sometimes that could mean overlooking their flaw, and sometimes that could mean confronting them about it, trying to bring them to repentance. And Chris, we want to say that we're not talking about if someone is abusive at no. all. If mm -mm. someone is abusive, you just need to get away. Just get right. away and get to safety. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about the normal annoying traits and things that we yeah. might deal with people. Right. Regular and, character flaws. Right. Our regular yeah. character flaws. And look, I'll be honest and say that my default is to avoid people who I can't stand to be around. I'm just going to be honest here. Yep. But you know what? Doing this episode has convicted me. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus had only chosen those who had really attractive qualities? Uh, he would have had no apostles and no followers. <laughs> he wouldn't have had anybody because we all have we all have character flaws. That's right. He would have been the only one. <laughs> and some people are more unlovable than others, but it's kind of based on what our personality is like, too. That's true. That's true. The thing about the command Jesus gives his people about loving others is that it's all on us. It has nothing to do with the other person. It's not about their behavior. It's about our behavior. And I admit, practically, that's really hard to live out. It's definitely hard to live out. Let's be honest. It's hard to put someone who's always lying or who's just an arrogant jerk. It's hard to put their best interests first. You want them to learn a lesson most of the time, yeah. you know, if you have the opportunity. But that's exactly why we need the Holy Spirit to help us. We could never do this on our own. I could never do this on my own. And Jesus isn't making us do this to torture us. He tells us why he's commanding us to in John 13, 35, which says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how the watching world will know that we are disciples of Christ and we're set apart and we're different and we're holy by how we love each other as Christians. That's right. 
And Chris, we talked about the need to change our perspective when we did the episode on lying a few weeks ago. And I think loving those who are unlovable definitely requires the same thing. The key to being able to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this kind of love is to stop thinking about all we do and all we sacrifice for God and instead focus on what Jesus has done and sacrificed for us. Spend more time thinking about how unlovable we are, yet Jesus was still willing to be tortured and crucified to bring us to him. That can change our perspective. And think about this. If you were the only person in history that God chose to save, Jesus would still have gone through all he did to save you. That should definitely humble us. So how do we live this out practically? We said that loving the unlovable may mean overlooking their annoying flaws, or it may mean confronting them about it. Which one we do is a decision that should be bathed in prayer and in love. If a trait is just annoying, like bragging all the time or being generally obnoxious, maybe just overlook it. You can try to look for what's lovable in that person while giving them an example of what true humility looks like. But if it's something habitual, like habitual lying or something else that's outright sinful, the most loving thing you could do is gently confront the person on their sin. And finally, remember what God did with those unlovable people in the Bible and remember what he does with and for us despite our annoying and difficult traits. Also, if we try to see everyone as created in the image of God, it really does make a difference. It's just changing perspective and it really does make a difference when you do that. It does. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in. And we are very excited to announce that after some delays, the Bible Blueprint, a guide to better understanding the Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be released on August 17th. Check it out on our social media pages for more information and consider joining us for Ambassador International's Christmas in July. Rose and I will be live on July 19th from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. That's Eastern Standard Time. And we're going to reveal the cover of the Bible Blueprint during that time. Christmas in July is an awesome event. There's lots of great authors, lots of giveaways. And you can join this event by the link we've posted on our Facebook, MeWe, and Parlor pages. You can also email us at Proverbs910Ministries at gmail.com and we'll send you the link. Have a blessed day.